Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings from the Texas Hill Country. This is Revolution in Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. On today's episode, we have Mr. Michael Kaufman, who's a senior research fellow in the Russian Eurasian program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he focuses on Russian military and Eurasian security issues. Prior to joining Carnegie in 2023, he served as the director of the Russian Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis, where he conducted research on the capabilities, strategy, and military thought of the Russian Armed Forces. Michael is widely renowned and recognized as one of the leading authorities on the Russian military in the Russo-Ukrainian War. He has also conducted extensive field research, the most recent of which we'll be discussing today. This episode was a lot of fun to record, and I think you'll catch that as you uh, listen along today. So with that, uh, big thanks to Michael Kaufman for coming on the show, and we'll get started. All right, so today we have Michael Kaufman, who uh, I think everybody knows who Michael Kaufman is. You can't be uh, paying attention to contemporary armed conflict and not have come across something he's written or a uh, presentation he's given. So uh, it's a big honor, and like I told, uh, like we were chatting before we started recording, I've been listening and reading uh, Michael's work for the better part of, I don't know, eight years. I did a lot of research uh, previously in writing on, on the Russian-Ukraine conflict. Um, and so his work was, uh, a lot of his early writing was very, uh, influential, but also very informative for me. And then also, I also really appreciated the, uh, the old SEPA podcast with Brian Whitmore. Those were terrific. I know he still does them, but, uh, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for the old SEPA ones. I thought that those were terrific. So anyway, with that, Michael, thank you for coming on today. Sure. Thanks for uh, having me on your podcast. Yeah. Uh, so I know you got back recently from a trip to Ukraine and, uh, uh, Franz uh, Stefan Gotti, who we had on uh, recently, he talked a bit about you guys' trip because you guys uh, went together with some other folks. Um, and he mentioned uh, that morale is still high and the Ukrainians need uh, still need a lot of ammunition to 
to keep doing what they're doing. And so if you would, Michael, if you uh, wouldn't mind, just uh, explain a bit more about what you observed while you were there. Yeah, sure. So look, I think as always, um, each time you go, and this is why I tried to go about every three months, I've been here now there four times in the last year during different offensives or defensive operations. Uh, and, and one of the reasons for that is the picture changes and you have to go to different parts of the battlefield. Looking at this war, you're dealing with almost a thousand kilometer front line that's being held. Yeah. And, and, the, and the war really varies depending on what battle you're looking at, right? If you're if you're in an urban battle space like Bakhmut in the winter, it will look different from the fighting out in the open further southwest of Muladar. And so the fighting in the south is like the fighting in the north. I, I'm giving this as a bit of a preamble to be able to understand that one challenge uh, in covering the, Ukraine, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine is you cannot just go to one battle or one fight and say, okay, well, I've seen it, and the rest of the war is like this. Right. I'm now going to generalize from this specific <laughs> battle to what the rest of this fight must have been like, yeah. and, and it's just not the case. You have to travel around a bit. Um, and that gets to the conversation. You know, First, on morale and motivation. I, I sense that you know morale and motivation is still quite good. Obviously, uh, having an offensive that's unsuccessful, that doesn't meet its objective, uh, impinges on it, but these things you know, vary depending on where you are, and I always find there's no... I don't use it as a marker because there's no abstract marker for, let's say, morale. Yeah. Uh, it varies depending on where you are, your situation, how well you're supplied, how well you're supported, and most importantly, how well you're led, right? For every soldier, the battlefield kind of zooms in for them. Yeah. They might have awareness left and right of them of what's happening around those units, but they don't know what's happening, you know, 500 kilometers east and what morale's over there. So, so the truth is that I find it varies quite a bit, and, and you try to build a composite picture. I think the main... Uh, the main issue Ukrainian forces are dealing with right now are, first, uh, they they appear motivated but exhausted from months and months of fighting. That's what you would expect at the end of an offensive. Bad weather has set in. It's wet, it's muddy, and now it's gotten cold. When we were there, particularly in the Northeast, I discovered new layers of mud in Ukraine that I, I, had, not previously, I had not previously experienced. <laughs> so every time you find a spot that actually says you travel, and, uh, and it's, it's even more muddy than the last spot you went to, um, the, you know, the challenge you have is that, uh, you're definitely dealing with a force that is still fighting and putting pressure on the Russian military, but has lost the initiative on parts of the line, whether it's battles like Bakhmut or Avdiivka or other places mm -hmm. further north. Um, the challenge Ukrainian military is dealing with is ammunition, yeah. right? It has basically been necked down to, I think, the, the amount of ammunition they would need to sustain defensive operations, but not offensive ones. Oh, wow. And this ammunition, according to them, has come irregularly. That may be because of our own funding problems here in the U.S., and we're probably trying to stretch those dollars and, mm. and make them last. Yep. Uh, I don't know the exact cause, but ammunition is now an issue, and the military is experiencing a degree of shell hunger. Uh, the the ground forces also have lost a fair amount of just offensive potential. It feels that way in terms of the the brigades that were employed in offensive operations over the summer and the fall and need to reconstitute and need to rotate. That's pretty typical too. It's about what you would yeah. expect coming off of five months of offensive operations. Yeah. Um, and, and this mostly has to do with units of action, right? Where you you know you have a brigade and the brigade has plenty of personnel left in it, has plenty of equipment left in it. But one challenge the Ukrainian military has had, and it was very visible at the opening of the offensive and, and throughout, is fairly low availability of actual units of action. Mm -hmm. That is, the 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 uh, units available within a maneuver battalion that could conduct an assault. 
right? And once those are spent, yes, you have a lot of capability on paper, but the brigade is not effectively able to prosecute the fight on the offense, right? Those troops that are trained, that are led, that are motivated and are equipped for an assault, they're set up for it. You know, once you lose them, then your brigade needs time to recover. And and that's also in part due to the fact that uh, Ukraine Armed Forces in general on the offense can't really scale offensive action very much beyond that of, let's say, a reinforced company. And what I saw in the last two months, they've gone down over the summer to basically platoon level actions to now assault groups that are about the size of half a platoon. We're talking around 16 men. Wow. So most, most actions by Ukrainian military and by the Russian Armed Forces are maybe two assault groups on two armored fighting vehicles backed by two tanks and that's probably going to be most of it maybe three assault groups but you're you're talking um, something that's about a platoon and a half maybe in total and yeah it's very 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 small scale and because the nature of the war has become very positional meaning terrain hasn't shifted much right so a lot of people have dug in all their artillery pieces are entrenched and they're sort of coming out 50 meters from their um from their little uh, hangar that they built to defend themselves against drones and various types of, of Russian uh, one-way attack munitions, they come out of it, they go to their firing point, they fire, and then they you know back back right into it and they're done. Yeah. Right, like they're in their hangar. So when 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 you have the scale of action being that small, it quickly draws on itself all the artillery fire in the sector because suddenly you're the only target that's doing anything, right? And you're very quickly lit up within minutes. We saw it. Uh, through, through a number of command posts. Hmm. So it's very hard for a small group of soldiers to attack uh, or make any, make any progress yeah. that way. I would say the one change I noticed is that FPV drones have moved kind of more to the front of the list hmm. as, as one of the key challenges at the tactical level people deal with. They haven't substituted for anything. You know, people tend to think of warfare as erroneously, I think, as, as a case of substitution. Well, it was what was mines now it's FPVs? And the answer is no, it, it was mines and it still is mines. <laughs> but now there's FPVs on top of mines, you see. Yeah. So, so the mines didn't go anywhere. They're still a major issue. But FPV drones have made it so it's difficult to move by vehicles during daytime. And it's displaced assaults typically into dawn, pre-dawn hours or late evening because FPV drones still typically don't use thermal cameras, so there are big issues in transition between units who operate electro-optical drones versus you know those with thermal cameras. Yeah. Um, but it's made it actually that you know it, that units have to move up in small groups, and often the last few kilometers to the line, they might if they're moving during the day, they might have to move dismounted. This, by the way, brought uh, me, Rob, and others to you know one of our secret pleasures, which is finding that the fundamentals matter in like this modern new and super advanced uh war which is it turns out that the technology began to deny or to an extent negate mobility which then made it such that fitness mattered because you have to hoof on foot a lot of your stuff to the actual line you plan to get to because you can't catch a ride to get there yeah yeah the uh so i i think you highlighted an interesting point that might be overlooked in part of this discussion and some of that is uh, force structure uh, and force design in a war of attrition. Um, you know, it sounds like the the material may still be there, but the force structure itself doesn't allow for the ability for a force to take a punch and then continue fighting. It seems like it's very much once you take a punch, you got to hunker down and, and reconstitute to a bit. Is that is that uh, what you were seeing? Yeah. So. Um... 
I, by the way, I love four structure conversations. They're actually, one, 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 I think by far one of the most interesting topics uh, to get into. But what I see is the interaction of force structure with force quality, mm. right? If the force quality isn't there, if you have very limited availability of junior leadership and forces that are able to conduct an offensive operation versus what it takes to hold a trench, yeah. right? Like you have a thin, let's say you have a thin layer of force quality that is capable of conducting assaults, right? Yep. And you have a very large layer that is able to hold an extensive trench line and you can rotate battalions through that pretty easily. You have a limited availability of junior leadership that that sort of motivated uh, experience can push the units forward. And yeah, in terms of force structure, it's another very significant factor, right? You have, let's say, for example, you have a brigade and you have lots of infantry battalions. I know Ukrainian brigades are my favorite brigades to hang out with. They have seven infantry battalions in the brigade. Okay, they have a fantastic, very uh, well, uh, I would say, decorated, highly decorated armored battalion that's mm. very well known. But they were expanded to basically the size of something like a division, yeah. seven infantry battalions. Yeah. And a brigade like that, from a structured perspective, is going to have a lot less mobility, but it's going to be able to hold a lot of terrain. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, if you look at kind of Ukrainian force structure, in many ways similar to Russian force structure, artillery heavy. Yeah. Okay, if you're an artillery heavy force, then you're going to be using land-based fires as your principal means of enabling maneuver, right? Yeah. Or as your way of affecting attrition. Yeah. And that's what you see happening here. Um, and, and on top of that, if you look at force structure from just uh, an organization command and control perspective, one challenge the Ukraine military had is it eliminated uh, the key command and control elements above that of the brigade level. Mm, yeah. And so it made it much harder to fight and operate as brigades because most planning gets done at the level of the brigade and is approved by the operational sort of strategic group, uh, the frontal command, yeah. rather than the other way around. And what's happening there is um, you're basically having brigades planning actions, coordinating a bit between each other. The core structure that only exists in the South, 9th and 10th Corps, is there for logistical support. It's not really in a separate command layer that's doing planning for brigades. And the brigades sort of max sort of planning level sophistication they can typically do is coordinating a couple reinforced companies or maybe one yeah. with artillery support and that takes the whole brigade staff to make that happen that's like the that's the most synchronization you could expect hmm. and even then it's probably going to be sequenced where artillery fires yeah. then the the mechanized assault goes in and if that timing gets borked then uh you know people are gonna have to adapt on the fly <laughs> That's uh so last question in this this realm of questions. You know, everybody made a big deal about all the uh, the Russian general officers and all the command posts getting struck, uh, taken out. You know, back over the summer, um, I guess it was last summer almost now. But there's been some more of that uh, in the past couple months too. And I think that I'm curious if there's an actual effect that you've seen happen. Um, on the, the Russians' ability to conduct operations based off of that, or if they still have uh, independent action at the lower levels, like does that you know colonel general getting killed actually affect their ability to do what it is that they're doing? Because I think that there's this uh, targeting and strategy as a strike mentality that seems to be taking over strategic. I'm using air quotes strategic thinking about military operations, and it seems like we're putting more emphasis on this as opposed to um, you know potentially helping those those small teams fight the little fights that they have to fight to, to help uh, fortify their positions or break through the positions? Uh, so on the leadership targeting strategy, I mean, I personally suspect that that was heavily supported or at least enabled by, um, by Western countries from an intelligence standpoint. 
But the real question is, what effect did it have? I'm not sure it had that significant of an impact. Certainly, it was already after the decisive first three weeks of the war mm -hmm. when the initial Russian invasion campaign plan failed and failed spectacularly. Uh, the real challenge the Russian military has had is, to some extent, also the challenge the Ukrainian military ended up having. It wasn't the loss of generals. And keep in mind that the Russian military sacked a lot of the commanders also that, you know, we hadn't killed, particularly the more senior ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you left, left to the own device, the Russian military was sacking left and right senior officers. Yeah. So uh, the issue was the loss of trained uh, and experienced, to some extent, regimental and battalion commanders. Okay. Those are very difficult to replace. Yeah. Once you lose those folks, that becomes a real problem. And a lot of them, the Russian military lost in the first three weeks. Mm. And, and then a lot of the rest, it lost in the following four months of, of the battle for the Donbass yeah. in the spring and summer of 2022. What happened in practice, and this way it gets, gets us back to the conversation we just had, where I was trying to explain why the Ukrainian military has some of these issues on offense. Neither of the armies that the Russia, Russia had in 2022 or Ukraine had in 2022 exist anymore. Yeah. These forces have gone through immense level of attrition and mobilization, right? So when you go through a process like that, when you expand the force and you're making up for a high, high degree of, or rate of losses, you're, you're losing a lot of the force that existed, the people in the original brigades, a lot of that junior leadership. You're now mobilizing people that don't have prior military experience, right, and have a modicum of training that they were rushed through. And you're getting officers that were promoted within ranks. And so you no longer have people, one, that have had prior military education. Yeah. I mean, like, on the one hand, yeah, great. They can't do PowerPoint slides. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it's a bonus, right? And, and I mean, no, I'm serious. One question I had from uh, from uh, folks from, from battalion commander of a very, very experienced assault brigade in Ukraine was basically they, they do a great job. Uh, promoting junior leaders who have a reputation for initiative, for uh, having respect for their forces. But none of these folks have really prior military education or any background that course. And they were actually very interested, like, how do you do basic tactical situation level analysis? How do you do basic intelligence analysis? And they were saying, do you have any slides <laughs> or presentations potentially that you could share? Uh, and I thought, first, I don't know if cursing you with this is the best <laughs> idea. Right. But second, I get what's happening to a military a year and a half in. Yeah that no longer has people that, that, that you know, from a planning standpoint yeah. can do this. And that's where you get a lot of your synchronization issues. Suddenly you have a lot of people, but you can't employ them with scale. And then you ask, well, how come we're not getting combined arms maneuver? Why would you expect that if you have people you've mobilized without prior experience, yep. you've given them a tiny fraction of the training they need, you picked up officers from other units who were promoted from previous ranks without planning or staff experience. You didn't train them either, really. I mean, mm -hmm. like a month maybe, but that's not... Yeah. You can't expect to build a brigade in four months, which is what we were doing, hmm. right? Um, and the Russian military had very similar issues. They lost a lot of the best part of the force and the more experienced leaders, and they couldn't replace them. And their ability to employ force at scale, what they could do with their force, dramatically went down. So they compensate for it through 2022 with a huge advantage in fires. I mean, just volume of fires and a massive fires advantage which then also petered out because they shot through most of their ammo, right? Uh, and they had to reorganize their logistics when HIMARS was introduced, and that set them back by, I'd say, a couple months, but but ultimately it was the ammo issues that were the real problem uh, okay. for the Russian military. Um, but, but so now you have both forces that are evolving, and it, and it takes into the conversation of, you know, militaries having to reconstitute, 
and having to find ways to rebuild their ability to actually conduct more complex operations and figuring out how they can sort out mobilization issues, training issues, and all that, because from a force structure and depth perspective, they weren't really prepared for it, or they weren't prepared for it as they thought, because to some extent, nobody is, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so transitioning off of that, what do you think uh, Russia is playing for at this point in time? In my, in my mind... Uh, they, they're sitting at their minimally acceptable outcome. You know, they've got the Donbass, they've got the Lambers, they've got Crimea. I, I, I think that they're happy with that, and they're happy to just sit and chew up Ukrainian forces until Ukraine can no longer throw forces into the fight and or until the West decides to uh, quit supporting uh, uh, Ukraine there on that, on that line. And so based off, uh, based off that, what is your assessment of, of the situation as it relates to what Russia's goals are at this point? I think the problem the Russian military has is that from my point of view, their middle political war aims still require taking the Donbass. And while they control a lot of it, they don't control all of it. And the part of the Nets they don't control, they're still trying to get. That's why they're conducting offensive right now in Avdiivka. And it creates a real problem for them because they also are struggling to put the piece of the puzzle together, given the state of their force. And they consistently attack prematurely, by the way. That's another issue. Hmm. It's very clear that if, if they would wait before launching these offensives, they could regenerate a lot more effective combat strength, right? But but they don't. And uh, the second goal I think they have overall is trying to destroy Ukraine's viability as a state. But this is a long-term goal and doesn't require them making necessarily territorial advances. Um, I think in general, unfortunately, next year favors Russia just looking at resource availability. Um, They have substantially increased production of artillery ammunition, of drones, of uh, various types of missiles and strike means of equipment, a lot of which are pulling out of storage, probably around 80% or so, and the rest they're making. But nonetheless, they have a sizable Soviet legacy of equipment they inherited. I mean, if it works, it works, right? (laughs) Yeah, that they can employ, modernize, slightly upgrade and, and put into service. So they, they have the numbers, but it's not a decisive advantage, meaning the advantage they enjoy over Ukrainian forces looking at the next year is not one that will call decisive or crushing. Yeah. But it's clear that 2024, the Russian military is going to be advantaged, especially at the rate that, that, they're, that the, the state is spending. Plus, they have access to ammunition from Iran and North Korea. And the amount they've gotten is not insignificant. Um, it's actually, I think, far more competitive than anything Europeans have provided Ukraine over the course of this conflict. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's, I mean, it's the reality. I think uh, from from a, just a pure ammunition perspective, um, when if we look narrowly at artillery ammunition, it's, it's pretty significant the impact it's going to make, at least for the coming year. So overall... I would say, yes, Russia's advantage next year. It it would be much more advantage in a kind of positional war if it just wanted to defend yeah. because it's already dug in and entrenched, whereas Ukrainian military hasn't, mm-hmm. hasn't done the same, although I very much think it needs to, and I think a lot of folks in Ukraine tend to share that view that they also need to, you know, a prepared defense turns out is very valuable. Maneuver warfare is not a magical wand. You can just wave over prepared defenses and just overcome them because that's how well it looked when it brief when you briefed it, right? So it goes back to the PowerPoint slide, right? It looks beautiful on the slide. Yeah, it briefs well, but it turns out a prepared defense, um, it's a yeah, tough, it's quite effective. Nut, yeah, tough not to crack. 
Yeah, and, and what happens is if the force, if the defense works, especially if it works well at the beginning, and a defending force survives the initial shock of the attack, oh, yeah. they quickly begin to gain confidence, mm-hmm. right? That's what happened early on in June. And, uh, and, and they quickly start gaining experience with how to effectively manage the defense, like actually employed that they set up. And, and then you start to have real issues because then you're going to need to inflict a lot of attrition mm-hmm. to enable the maneuver operation you want. It is. You're going to have to earn it. And, and the only way you can get there at, at the end of the day is with attrition. And, um, and, and we saw very, like, I'll put it this way, saw uh, clearly what happened with a plan, with plan that I, I think depended heavily on the shock of the initial assault and the notion that, like, complex dilemmas would come yeah. into play. And that morale would break very quickly. And look, it was fair to make some of those arguments, perhaps. Yeah. But I'm just saying. But my view is always: you should prepare for high levels of attrition. Prepare for the worst. Yeah. Hope for like hope. Hope that you cash a good break. Yeah. So that's uh, a perfect segue to <laughs> the next thing I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Uh, sure. You've been writing a lot about maneuver and attrition lately. Uh, you and a couple other folks, and uh, position warfare for that matter too. Um, what has this conflict, uh, I think, taught you about those two or three ideas? And what does everybody else need to learn from that? Sure. Well, first, I mean, I, it taught me that I need to learn more about it because there are several <laughs> debates. You know, to, what, to be honest, to what extent, these are not distinct forms of warfare, right? These are not um, strategies either. There's like strategy of, of just attrition versus strategy of maneuver. Right. And I've gone back and forth with this. With other people I respect, like uh, Lori Friedman, who have good thoughts on it, and and so, um, and I've also learned that people define it differently. The Marine Corps conversation on attrition versus maneuver is quite different from the Army, and we're like supposedly in the same military. Yeah. So um, it, it's sort of it, basically what I have learned is that people mean different things when they use these terms yeah. in the conversation, and I need to figure out what it is they mean first in order to engage with them. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, I think the uh, other thing on that, if I can jump in real quick too, is that it's, uh, especially you mentioned the Marines and, and maneuver, like this term is so intertwined with self-identity to some of these institutions that if you question it, they take it as an attack on their person or on their self, uh, on, uh, on who they are as institutions. And so it becomes very, very, a very defensive discussion for them. And it's hard to have an actual discussion when you try. Right. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So here I feel I'm advantaged because I'm not in the Army, I'm not in the Marine Corps, 
right? I didn't I didn't serve in the military. I was in the Department of Defense, as you know, National Defense University, and all, yeah. all the civilian stuff. But um, but so I don't have a dog in the fight where I came from a service and a particular uh, institutionalized form of thinking that I now have to defend, right? Yeah. Because this is the way my service defines it, and I'm gonna die on that on that doctrinal hill, right? Yeah. Um, the way I look at it is. <sighs> First, from from uh, a conversation on on maneuver versus attrition, I had somewhere somewhere recently post uh, there was another discussion I was on. Somebody talked about maneuver, and I joked that it's only maneuver if it comes from the maneuver region of France. Otherwise, it's just <laughs> otherwise it's just sparkling mobility. Yeah, this the sense of uh, you know what is maneuvers? Maneuver is just mobility is just yeah. moving around. You have maneuver in urban environments too. People think that in urban war you don't have much maneuver, yeah. but you do. Like infantry, other people they are engaged in it. Um, uh, and and so to me. Uh, and, and attrition is something that's ever present on the battlefield, right? There's no part point where you're not really inflicting attrition. It's just a question of what are the principal mechanisms you're looking at mm -hmm. to attain decisive advantage and how you're imposing losses on the opponent and what's kind of the core, more the core of your approach. So if you look at, let's say, maybe some rudimentary differences between uh, the, the way kind of the maneuver school thinks that dominates the Western militaries and, let's say, um, Let's say the Russian military, if we take if we take an example, because we're on that topic, yeah. like in Russian military, um, you know, artillery fires and the attrition they inflict on a on a force was seen as decisive, right? And then the point of maneuver is to uh, exploit that and to be able to move up your artillery and your fires again uh, to inflict this damage on the opponent. The point of the fires wasn't just to kind of enable combined arms maneuver. It was actually meant to be the decisive element of what you're doing to the opposing force, yeah. right? Whereas on our side, it might be much more that fires enable some combined arms maneuver that then seeks to uh, create dilemmas and exploit and yada, yada. Does that make sense? Yeah, throw in all the buzzwords. You got to get them all in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot to mention lethality. Have you heard about that? There's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's all this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and and the way I tend to think of it, just my 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 own lessons learned and experience um, from from this particular war is it's clear that uh, engaging maneuver warfare against a prepared defense is exceedingly difficult. That what really affects the opponent is shock with significant advantage in fires. Yeah. First and foremost, firepower. I don't care how you deliver it, but it matters. Firepower truly matters. Um, much more to me, I think, over over maneuver and what your force is doing. Uh, uh, secondarily, being able to effectively degrade the opponent through firepower, which is then what begins to significantly inflict their morale. Their morale will not be affected by simultaneity or lots of arrows just coming at them on the map or how well everything's coordinated on your side. It's just, just not the case. Yeah. I mean, you don't see lines breaking that way, and you haven't seen that happen in Ukraine. You haven't seen substantial... Uh, uh, routes do 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 these kind of dilemmas imposed. Where you have seen them is where a force has been completely depleted. There's nobody left to man the line. There are huge gaps. The lines are manned by irregulars. There isn't good coordination or communication between the force, and morale is very low yeah. uh, on the opposing side because they know that they're in a very sorry state and they're going to be in no position to effectively repel an assault. But that has happened over months of sort of grinding attrition, yeah. right? 
and you can similarly force email, force opposing uh, force to withdraw, right? But it's it's very difficult with uh, maneuver, even when you are able to put the pieces together, right? To to get uh, more of your more of your combat arms than uh, through the synergies of the coordination. Mm-hmm. Like even if you're able to coordinate effectively, okay, more often than not, it's it's still quite challenging to overcome you know, a prepared defense with good density of forces that's yeah. well backed by fires. Yep. And you don't, by the way, just to be clear, the world also shows you don't need some um, some significantly superior correlation. There isn't this like rule of three to one that yeah. people I think erroneously learned from uh, from World War II. You don't need that necessarily, but you also have to be disabused of the notion that morale and motivation breaks easily, that complexity and simultaneity inflicts some sort of cognitive paralysis on the opponent on the battlefield, right? In fact, if anything, the modern battlefield has such pervasive ISR that the real challenge is, is even how do you plan to maneuver and get together in an assembly area without being completely spotted and identified and targeted early on? Yeah. Because they can see everything and you can too. So you're not going to inflict any surprise. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality. You're not going to surprise anybody, right? This, this is already going out the window. And instead, what you see is at least the current trends from this particular war, which may not be an exemplar of modern wars. This might be just one context of one war. Is that it forced dispersal both on the offense and the defense. Most technology is offense, defense, agnostic. That's the reality. And a lot comes down to how you actually employ it. Like drones are not offense or defense specific as a tech. What it did do is it forced dispersal amongst the defense and the offense. So you begin to see varying effects. On the one hand, the offense is having a hard time to mass, to inflict, you know, yeah. combi- you know, to basically engage in maneuver. Yep. On the other hand, the defense is having a hard time massing to defend too. So a company is holding a trench line that's something uh, at least the size of a battalion should be holding and so on and so forth. So quickly the defense is not is actually dispersed too. And in many cases, isn't even holding the trench. Hmm. It doesn't want to be in the trench yeah. because because you're going to be seen and just going to draw a whole lot of fires on yourself and you will be the victim of significant levels of attrition before you get to do anything. So what's the point of holding that position? So that, what you just said leads me to this, (laughs) this question. So have we hit a point of stalemate then across the front? So I don't think we have a durable, like a durable or stable stalemate. I think at this stage, yeah, on large parts of the front, the war stalemated. There are a couple of reasons for that. Right. First, you're at the tail end of a series of offensives where the forces are, are relatively exhausted and you have winter set in anyway. So winter, when winter first sets in, it has a tendency to stalemate things because it's very hard to prosecute yeah. offensive operations and, and soldiers prefer to dig in oh, yeah. and stay in the comfort and shelters of their entrenchments rather than get out there. Right. It's like that, 50 degrees in central Texas right now and I don't want to go outside. So <laughs> yeah, I see you wearing a sweatshirt in, inside your own home. Yeah. Well, so, so that part's true, but you know, have we have we reached uh, a stalemate that's going to last? No, I, I think right now both sides are struggling to figure out how to how to attain a decisive advantage. It's very hard for them to get any kind of breakthrough because uh, pursuing this as a grinding fight with dismounted infantry and fires, basically you end up fighting tree line to tree line, and you're measuring your advances in in hundreds of meters, and those gains cannot lead to any kind of momentum that would generate yeah. a, a breakthrough, right? Um, yeah, incrementalism is not going to win the day for sure. Right, right. So I think I think 
both Ukraine and Russia are looking for, or certainly Ukraine is looking at um, two two ways of thinking about this. The first is uh, how they change the way you employ your forces, mm -hmm. given the current character of war, at least the character of this war, the one that that, that they're fighting. Yep. Uh, and the second is uh, technological innovation. And to what extent technological innovation put together with change force employment can help break out. To me, what's missing in that conversation is my, my uh, favorite part other than force employment. And I think it's the third thing that, that everyone always needs to talk about, which is the fundamentals. The problem that the problems being experienced on the battlefield that I see aren't just due to mines, let's say, and mines lack of enablers or FPV drones, EW is catching up, but lagging them and difficult to, to get around them during daytime and anti-tank guy missiles and combat helicopters and all this. Okay. Um, or how you just get, how you just get to a prepared defense. Yeah. The problem is you have to address the fundamentals in your force, force quality. This is issue one. Okay. Uh, force structure. Who's in it? How the brigades are? How the brigades are organized? Which brigades you're using for what? Your overall force management strategy. I think there were a lot of issues this year yeah. uh, in the offensive from that when I when I look at it that way. Um, and then uh, beyond tactics, the overall military strategy. Like some people, some folks thought that okay, the offensive failed because there was a mismatch between means and ends, right? I don't think that's true because that's essentially saying that the offensive couldn't have succeeded because there wasn't enough or whatever magic sauce the offensive was missing. That's not the case. Yeah. I was there in July in the South and around Bakhmut area, and it wasn't struggling because of a mismatch between means and ends, right? I mean, you can always have more means. I've never been to any any part of a fight where people said, you know, yeah. I really have everything I need and I don't need anything else right now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, but... But the issue wasn't the means. The issue was the ways, and it was the choices and trade-offs made in the strategy. And it could have it could have gone differently. It could have been done differently. So, I think you also have to look at the strategy and the choices you're making. Um, and 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 to me, that's that's another big piece of the puzzle. It's not just technological innovation, and it's not just force employment. If I look to some of the traditional uh, cases of Temporary stalemate after for which people break out. I don't know if you look at World War One, maybe some like nineteen sixteen on the Western Front, yeah. um, right? And you say, well, what really broke out of that? Was it tech innovation? Was it British tanks, or was it the whole change in force employment and the overall approach to that fight? Uh, or to me, it's a combination of means. These things tend to be multi-causal, yep. and so neither of these are, are a single piece of the puzzle that's going to uh, change the dynamic right now in this war. And the big question is who's going to be able to put those pieces of the puzzle together first. And I think that it's probably going to be whoever is able to address the fundamentals first, right? Replacement of lost manpower, material, ammunition, being able to train up the force and increase the training, fixing junior leadership, and, and uh, then being able to employ the force differently because you can come up with all sorts of neat concepts and tactics. Yeah but the force quality isn't there to execute that. These are just PowerPoint briefing slides at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that the, uh, the PowerPoint thing. That's what I was, when you, when you were talking about complexity of tactics and whatnot, I, I just kept thinking, um, you know, 
the problem is we've made the uh, the slide too hard, and they just can't go out and execute the slide. Um, all right, so we're we're well, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I want to make an interjection. Yeah. I think the interesting thing is that one, the more complex a plan is, obviously, the more difficult it is to pull it off. Yeah. But secondarily. Most U.S. thinking about a major war focuses on the initial decisive phase, kind of the maneuver phase of the war that's that's expected and anticipated, which may last a month, maybe two. It never thinks about the fact that pretty much all major great power wars, they tend to, a lot of them, if you're not successful, and it's very difficult to be successful in the way that you've inflicted such a decisive defeat in those first you know, month, month or two, yeah. those early weeks, if you don't achieve that, then what happens is that you are going to be in a war that's going to involve very high pro levels of attrition and prolonged attritional battles. There's battles that are characterized primarily by attrition posed by both sides. And uh, the force you're going to end up with is a force that's not going to be able to execute those types of operations, even if maybe it was early on. Like very quickly, the force quality will degrade you will blow through a lot of the best munitions or best platforms you had. And then the question is, what's your force going to look like for the rest of that war? And did you plan that out? Or was it a relatively brittle army that had a lot of high-end boutique capabilities and can do a lot of things early on? But if that did not work out, if you didn't win the war decisively in the early weeks, then you're in big trouble. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, – I think that uh, Cathal Nolan or Cahill Nolan um, captures that really well in his book, The Allure Battle, at the end of the – the end of the book he basically says like it's just grinding attrition that wins most wars against industrialized states and i think that uh, as much as we'd like to think that that is not the case or pretend like it's not the case or say that it's not because we're not that bad and we're not going to go out and and perform that poorly it, it still is the case all right so with that we're uh, we're running out of time here so i just want to ask you what is the worst hot take or worst couple hot takes that you hear floating around sure um I would say for me, last couple of months, uh, first is fire control and the notion that if you just draw range, range rings on a map, suddenly you control people's supplies and ground lines of communication. And you don't need offensives at all. In fact, ground warfare is old hat. Yes, absolutely. You can just, yeah, you can just with fire somehow magically control entire vast sectors of a geography. And the answer is you can't. Actually, you can't control much beyond a few kilometers, and even then you're not controlling, you're intermittently denying yep. it. I mean, most battles taking place between these forces, uh, the the two sides are barely a few kilometers from each other. And in theory, they should have fire control with just artillery and the most basic uh, the most basic types of fires available uh, to interdict each other's supplies. And to an extent they do, but this is still not decisive. It's not enough for one side to even move, uh, advance several kilometers in, in any specific offensive action. So the notion you can get this at 40 kilometers, 50, 100 to me is pretty, is pretty ridiculous. And I, and I heard these theses advanced over the summer basically saying, well, Ukraine can't reach the maximal objectives in the offensive getting to Mediatopol, but it can sever the land bridge, the ground lines of communication, if it just inches a little bit more forward because HIMARS can range, you know, 70 km forward so I'll just draw this range ring there. Things don't work that way. Sorry, it's just not the case, right? So there's this, yeah, th this theory I really, I really don't like. I started seeing a lot of it, and I saw started seeing a lot of like substitution theories of victory that mm. don't don't work in practice. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe instead of a ground campaign, you need this or you need that. And what basically, what on this most recent trip, 
really dug into drones. And again, folks get very excited about drones, but drones, they're just kind of like a uh, common strain of thought, Amos, which is next tech replacement theory. Yeah. Whatever the next tech you see on the battlefield is going to replace some old tech. Yeah. And, and usually it isn't. FPV drones are not replacing artillery. They're not replacing um, traditional means of strike and fires. Yeah. Sorry, they're not. Yeah. They can't hold terrain. Um, they can't advance in trenches. And they're limit and they're used much more in much more limited fashion than people think. Mm -hmm. Like the technical complexities and everything involved in employing them. And yes, they're not mature enough yet. Maybe you're seeing the kind of World War One air power version of the technology. That's true. But folks very quickly hop on to this hype train of this drone is going to eliminate the need for mortars, or we're not going to hear artillery anymore. Nobody in the front line says that at all. <laughs> Yeah, I bet yeah. they don't. Nobody, uh, nobody says, hey, good news. We have FPV yeah. drones. We no longer need artillery. You can send those uh, back to the headquarters. <laughs> yeah. I just was saying, nobody says they don't need armored fighting vehicles. Yeah. In fact, if anything, everybody says, I mean, number one thing people want is is tracked uh, armored fighting vehicles like M113s. They're really important mm -hmm. because they have the combination protection mobility you need. You can't get around the battlefield with wheeled vehicles nearly as easily. And tanks are still used very commonly, both for defense and in support of offensive action at small scale, because everything is small scale, right? If the assault is with two assault groups and you have two, you have, you have two armored fighting vehicles that you're going in with, maybe supported by two tanks, but still a significant percentage of the vehicles involved you often see are main battle tanks, right, in different roles. Um, I won't go. That's that's for another whole separate podcast. If you want, <laughs> we can get into that. Uh, as an armor, yeah, I, as an armor officer, I would love to have that conversation. So, <laughs> yeah, but I, I I really dislike the the sort of replacement theory yeah. of tech that as soon as anything's really effective, it just means that suddenly these other things that people have are no longer needed, and people don't think that way. At least not anyone I've encountered in in, in Ukraine. Yeah, I think that that I, I think a lot of times that is potential i don't know it could be a, a product of many things but i think part of it too is folks just uh don't necessarily understand combined arms right and that's just another element that now is getting applied within the combined arms umbrella it doesn't obviate anything else that's in there it's just another thing to consider all right so last thing here uh any projects you're working on that you'd like to to provide an update on uh we're at so Let's see. Working on another piece that deals with uh, attrition versus maneuver that I hope you'll like, based on wait. based on ex kind of experiences and observations uh, over, over the the last six the months of, of fighting in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, working on a couple of pieces, one on drones, like FPV drones, what they do and don't do, and working on force structure piece, evolution of Russian force structure and adaptation, and how that evolved as a kind of just a study of the adversary to see what changed over the course of the war yeah. and maybe a couple more uh some longer term projects on on military analysis and and a bit on what happened in the war as well as you know each time each time i go with a group of colleagues we try to put together the history and try to do a first cut yeah, of the history of key battles like battle of hostamel and what happened because to me the biggest problem in our in our military in our defense establishment isn't that people don't know much about the Russia-Ukraine war, is that a lot of them seem to know things that aren't true. That's the first <laughs> things they learn are just not true, they're not correct. And it, and and it's the job of folks like me to try to fix that yeah. with actual, like by, by figuring out what happened yeah. in detail and trying to figure out why it might've happened that way. And 
we're increasingly able to provide much better answers on what happened in these key battles and how they played out to make sure we don't draw the wrong lessons because people get thirsty for those lessons, but often the first things you learn about a war just simply aren't true. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing the uh, the maneuver attrition piece for sure and uh, everything else you're working on. So, Michael, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. All right. All right. Well, well great, great being on your podcast, Amos. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.